0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you for all you do to help promote the show. And uh, if you have not yet subscribed, please do that as quickly as possible. And uh, if you can encourage others who like the show to subscribe, well, please do that as well. That is good for us and good for you. So um, we speak about how the world really works, right? And One of the most compelling ways to discredit a doctrine is to show that it has no relationship with reality. It's just not how the world really works. And uh, one of those, for instance, is the doctrine of equality. Now, it is fairly well known that in the early 17th century, when the pilgrims arrived in New England, uh, the first couple of years, they nearly starved. People did die. Uh, And one of the things is that they had adopted the principle of equality. What they did is that they had one big community farm. And the produce of the farm was shared equally. Well, the farm performed so poorly that by the time it was divided up among all the pilgrim families, there was literally not enough to sustain life. And so the next year, they were literally saved by a decision to allocate to each man a section of the, uh, the, the, the land. And so each man had his own homestead, his own area. And out of that, uh, all of a sudden, the productivity of the land multiplied by many times. So, you know, it's very simple. We understand that in the real world, People care more about their own possessions and their own property than they do about anybody else's. And instead of bewailing that, and instead of utopian thinking that says, well, let's work and change people on this, uh, the first thing to do is to change circumstances and make them adopt to reality. Um, another example of this uh, you know, keeps on cropping up. Um, You know perfectly well that if you uh, are instructing your 17-year-old daughter, who's going out into the world for the first time, and she's going to get her first job, and she's going to be uh, thinking of, of moving into her own place, which she'll share with a few other girls, there are certain things that you as a parent would want to tell her one of the things you might say to her is that um, do not under any circumstances go to isolated places with a guy if a guy invites you back to his apartment or his house don't do it if a guy invites you to his hotel room you don't go and people hearing you might say, why are you doing that? You're blaming the woman. Uh, It's nothing to do with her. The man has to behave properly. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. But the reality is that until some dreamed of utopian time arrives, uh, men, there are going to be caddish men. They're going to be scoundrels. They're going to be rogues. They're going to be bad men. They just are, and so your primary concern is protecting your daughter. She's seventeen years old. She's coming out into the world for the first time. Uh, there are things you have to tell her to protect herself. Uh, you might even tell her how to dress. You might say, "Don't, don't dress." You know, you're going to work. Don't dress provocatively. It'll, it'll make men concentrate on your body and not on your soul. Uh, you don't want to do that at the stage of your life or at any stage. And people hearing you would say, she should be able to dress any way she likes. Men have to stop being pigs. Yeah, right. But um, we're talking about Reality and uh, that is how the world really works. So, uh, equality is like that. It would be nice if everybody in among the pilgrims would have worked just as hard on the community farm as they did on their own farms, but that's not how reality works. And so, we understand that that's uh, one critique we could level at the idea of socialism. Um, equality is a doctrine that doesn't work. Freedom does work. Trouble is that freedom results in inequality and an attempt to impose equality, to impose equality, uh, wipes out any possibility of freedom. So uh, you've got to choose. Do you want freedom or do you want equality? If you choose equality, it conflicts with reality. And uh, if you choose freedom, well, then you have to be mature enough to understand that equality is not part of the deal. How's about the doctrine of feminism? Well, one only has to ask, does it conform to reality or does it conflict with reality? I'm not altogether sure of what the doctrine of feminism is. I'm not sure anybody does because it's feminism is a social construct, to use one of the popular phrases of the left. Uh, It's not like, um, you know, what is the doctrine of gravity? Well, (laughs) it's not a doctrine. It's just a reality. Uh, Gravity, you know, is, is a force that uh, causes two masses to attract themselves to one another in proportion to the size of their masses and in inverse proportion to the square of the distance between them. Uh, It's not a matter of opinion. (laughs) Gravity just is. Feminism is not like that. Feminism is a matter of opinion. And um, there are any number of social and cultural and political components and theories and moral philosophies having to do with gender and rights and. Uh, or oh, these, these, you know, and there are some women who are feminists in one way, but not another. There are some men who are feminists in one way and not another. Um, and so, it's, it's it's very difficult to know exactly what it is. But um, basically, it's um, a movement that wants to see an end to sexism. Well. <laughs> Okay, and now I'm, I'm quoting from one of the authorities. So I would never say an end to sexism because sexism isn't defined in any way whatsoever. Now we have to say, what is what is sexism? And, um, uh, you know, and... Uh, Okay, well, let's try and do it without using the word feminism, strive for they they want to see social justice for those who have been oppressed by the patriarchy. Oh, now we've got to figure out what the patriarchy means and um, and so on and so forth. It becomes extremely difficult. But uh, if sexism lies at the heart of it, which is essentially I mean, I think sexism means noticing a difference between men and women. Uh, this now becomes very difficult because um, all of the all hope for the future of mankind depends obviously on noticing a difference on men noticing that women are different and women noticing that men are different and without that it's extremely unlikely that we shall see uh, the uh, the human race continue again nonsensical but um, the, the, how well, okay, well, they should have exactly the same amount of money. Well, see, here you run into a problem, because let's uh, say for the moment that marriage is one of the most important aspects of male-female relationships. Well, actually, marriage works best when there is not financial parity. That's right. So much so that uh, the stay-at-home dad, the idea of the husband staying home while the wife is out working, um, is one of the highest and most reliable indicators of divorce. It doesn't work, and uh, it so happens that the reverse is true, that the greater and by the way, all of this is presuming that the husband is a gentleman, that the husband is a man, the husband is a nobleman, that the hus- husband is not a tyrant or a scoundrel. Or everything I'm saying is on the presumption that the man is a man. And uh, and I know that there are fewer and fewer of those around, and, and I know that uh, wonderful women sometimes feel... Uh, almost hopeless about the diminishing number of real men to be found but uh, at any rate if uh, if feminism is about men and women having exactly you see see the problem we come into because in in reality uh, women are happiest when they are with a man who makes more money than they do and a man is happiest when he is bringing in the bulk of the money, and that uh, and that his wife's um, comfort and survival and ability does depend on him. For men, that 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 is a, a wonderful thing. Men like that. A smart thing for a guy who's getting married to a, gir- a girl who, or a woman who's working, uh, one of the smartest things you could advise your male friends, young friends getting married, one of the smartest things they could say to the woman to whom they're getting married is, "Listen." Uh, we're not going to buy a house or get an apartment that is dependent on both of our incomes. I'd like us to be able to live on my income alone, and your income should go into uh, a savings account for the future, whatever it's going to be, but not that we are going to get ourselves into a spending situation, which absolutely depends on us being a two-income family. That's not a great idea. So it's a smart thing, and, and the majority of women, and when I say the majority of women, women who have not been fatally damaged by the culture, the majority of normal, healthy women will respond very positively to that. They would love to be in a marriage where the financial security of the family does not depend on them working. Most women would love that. So there, right from the start, uh, there is a a conflict between reality and feminism, because reality is that most women want to, I'm just going to say women want to get married, and men, if they are mature and wise and are real men, also know that they want to get married for a number of reasons. And we cover this very extensively in our new book, The Holistic You, which is that so much that brings joy and achievement into a man's life happens because of his wife. Um, Two straightforward examples. A man has a relationship with his son because of his wife. That's, that is pretty basic and pretty real. All right? Every man would like to have a son, and, and a, you know, any, any male, any person of the male persuasion who says, "Well, I don't really care about having a son." Uh, you are probably, in all likelihood, a fairly damaged male. That's a very different situation from there are, there are many couples, I mean, who are incapable for various medical reasons or whatever. They're not capable of, of having children. I get it. That's a tragedy and it's very hard. And uh, and and people deal with that in, in better or worse ways. But ordinarily, in the natural order of things, uh, men want sons. Now, you might say, well, all you need is a compliant, consenting woman and you can have a son, right? that's all compliance and consent nine months later you got a 50% probability of having a son all right but that's a mistake nine months later you have a 50% probability of a male fetus or of a male child but that's a very different thing from a son isn't it a son is a unique relationship a relationship between a man and his son It's very unique, and it is extremely difficult verging on the improbable for a man to have a good relationship with a son if he doesn't have a good wife, because that relationship between a man and his son comes about because his wife makes it happen. Very hard for it to happen otherwise. No, impossible very very hard now there's several reasons for that one of them is that the way the good lord created us there is a natural and comfortable relationship between a man a boy and his mom and a girl and her dad that's the way we are and so the, it, it, it's a reason, you know, you'll, you'll find that uh, many men have a tattoo uh, w- with a heart and the word mom, right? Men love their mothers, but a relationship with a father, it's ve- it can be awkward. And, and if, I mean, there's no man who hasn't felt it. And that's why Sigmund Freud came up with the most unbelievable nonsense complete and utter bilge water Uh, theories about the relationship between a, a boy and his mother and a boy and his father complete and utter rubbish but the reason he was driven in that direction to try and find something to explain is because every man has experienced a certain basic awkwardness with his dad at a certain point now when he gets older it it comes right usually but the relationship depends to such a great extent on the role of his mom she can really build the connection between a boy and his father says that the man ends up with a real relationship with his son and conversely girls have a natural easy relationship with their dads he is after all the first man in their life and they they look to him for security and they look to him for support and sustenance and strength and the wherewithals of life and uh, and and this is why i mean I, you know everybody knows it's it's an old truism that Um, You know, girls look for guys. Girls who grew up with great fathers look for guys like fathers, like their fathers. And uh, sometimes fathers have to help with that because by the time a girl is 18 or 19 or 22 and she's looking for a husband, somebody to spend the rest of her life together with in partnership, at that point, her dad is already a very accomplished and developed man. And there is absolutely no way a 25-year-old guy can be that. And so it takes a lot of wise guidance on the part of a father to explain to his daughter and help walk her through this and to say, look, here's uh, this guy uh, is no good for you for the following reasons. And this guy, this guy could be good if you like him. I have no problems because he's got good character and he's got great potential and he's on the right track and he's using his time wisely. But she said, well, he's not this and he's not that. Yeah, and he won't be for a number of years because it takes a while. But a wise father has the role of spotting the potential in his daughter's future mate. So all of that happens because of the connection between a father and his daughter and a daughter and her dad. It's so important that we know, and and this was very disturbing when the psychologists and the doctors began to first research this, but there's a lot of literature on this, and that is that girls who grow up without fathers in the home uh, reach puberty significantly earlier than girls who grow up in intact, wholesome families. What do you think of that? Isn't that wild? And by the way, if there is, if the mother has a boyfriend uh, in the house, that makes it even more. But this is a very striking thing. And it's it's troublesome to the world of science because it's hard for them to find a materialistic or a scientific explanation for why it is that girls who grow up without a father in the house hit puberty significantly earlier than other girls and the answer obviously is it's a spiritual issue it's not a physical issue and without a relationship with her father she is already seeking a man in her life that's exactly what women do they seek out men and uh, and this young girl she might be very young but her need for a man in her life is satisfied by her father when there's no father around she still has the need for a man in the life in her life and her spiritual need brings along a physical manifestation which is the arrival of puberty because she she now has to find a man who's there is no father so she's got to find another man how does she do that by being a woman so she becomes a woman as early as she possibly can um, right this, none of this is healthy stuff but um, all part of of the way the good Lord created us, and, uh, and that's the way it works. The problem is that there are people who either don't know how the world really works, or they are determined to combat this and to somehow force the world into their vision of what they think the world actually ought to look like. Yeah, every woman needs a man and every man needs a woman what does a man need a woman for you might say well he's got uh, physical needs now uh, that's that's obvious but let's go much deeper than that uh, a man needs a woman for one thing in order to uh, be socially connected with his community and um And that's a reality. You know, many men listening to me right now might be tempted to say to themselves, that's not true. I don't need a woman. I've got friends. I'm connected to my community. Um, You may think you are, but the truth is you don't have any idea of what connection to to your community will look like uh, when you do have a woman. And uh, men without a woman feel that very poignantly. Your connection with the community comes about because of the wonderful thing called a woman. Women connect more comfortably and naturally than men. And so all of a sudden, you're married and you find that uh, all of a sudden there are new people in your life. I can't tell you when I explain this at a speech or at a seminar or at an event, I can't tell you how many men come up to me to validate what I've just said and say, yeah, uh, some of my most successful business relationships have come about with men who are the husbands of women my wife became friendly with, and then we became friendly with as couples, and we started off going out for dinner, whatever it was, and then little by little, yeah, that's right. Your social circle expands exponentially if you have a good woman in your life so that's one thing now that spreads from that very quickly to finance not just friendships but finance in the way i just described so yes it's it's not an accident Um, you know ibm in the old days up up until the 60s uh, ibm for senior executive positions and ibm was not in any way unique in this it was very common among large corporations uh, they would interview the wife as well as interview the husband. After there were several interviews with a potential candidate for a senior executive position, uh, they would meet the wife as well because they understood how absolutely crucially important a good wife is in the role of a husband. In other words, the, if you're not allowed to ask today, are you? But if you're hiring a man in your company. If you can hire a man who's in a great marriage, you get much more bang for the buck. That man delivers far more to your organization than a single man possibly can. Now, I know what many people are going, to say, well, a single man can be married to his job. And that may be true, but I'm speaking about senior executive positions where the wholeness of the man counts how good his relationships are with other people. Because don't forget, uh, when you are bringing aboard a senior person into your organization, it's not just technical skills you want, but it's his connections, it's his experience, it's how he relates to other people, both in the organization and outside the organization. And all of these things are far more successful in a man who is married than in a man who is single so uh, that's what a uh, that, that that's just a few of the things for which a man needs a woman but why does a woman need a man but right? after all if you are a good feminist then you've already heard the expression that you know, men, uh, women need men like fish need bicycles. Um, you 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 already know. Women do not need a man for anything anymore today. Okay, so let me just explain something here that uh, that your feminist friends should really take to heart. They should really understand this, and that is, you can't. you, you really need to think about how unusual it is. For people living in this brief historic moment, living in a modern civilized democracy. Think about that. A woman doesn't need a man? Yeah, because if she is in trouble, she can dial nine one one and the police will come and save her and rescue her. Or better yet, she's living in a society where the likelihood of her ever needing to deal nine one is close to zero. As i'm sure you know up until the 1960s the women could walk safely in the day or the night in any park in any city in the united states of america it was very rare very unusual for anything to go wrong but there's been a change in the last 60 years a huge a huge change and uh, and now uh, that's why I said dial nine one one, but I said it tongue in cheek because you all know as well as I do the likelihood of a woman being saved from an assault by dialing nine one one. The odds are very low of anybody coming in anywhere near quick enough time to save her. Uh, but at least you know, think about. How things seemed in the 1950s, where for the most part, women were pretty much safe. But don't forget, most women were married back in the 50s. And so it's not just a case of uh, taking out the trash and fixing a leaking faucet and um, taking care of maintenance and gassing up of the car it's understanding that the luxury of a woman making the foolish statement and even more foolishly believing the foolish statement that women don't need men anymore, that can only be said by a very comfortable, a very affluent woman living in an affluent, liberal, democratic, civilized society. But for the overwhelming majority of human history, it's not been that way. And there's very little likelihood of it not going back to that. You've got, you've got to think, if you, if you take all the human beings who've lived in the last 2,000 years, all the human beings who've lived on the planet in the last 2,000 years, how, what percentage of them do you think lived out their lives in peace without experiencing any life-changing violence think about that it's been estimated that only about two percent of human beings of all the humans who've lived in the last two thousand years only less than two percent actually did not experience life-changing violence in their lives think about this. I mean, What proportion of Americans live their lives today without experiencing violence? Much more than 2%, right? But I think you'll agree that the number has been dropping dramatically since 1960. At the time of Jesus, the, the Roman Empire was engaged in a long, dreadful civil war And it eventually ended up with the dissolution of the Roman Empire. That civil war period, three million people were killed. Now, back then, the world, what was the world population at the time of Jesus? Uh, 200 to 300 million, let's say 300 million, might have been a bit less. Um, So, three million killed by Roman civil wars would be the equivalent of a war today that would snuff out the lives of 70 million people. How many people altogether total died in World War II? Nobody knows the exact figure, obviously. Nobody has a clue what the exact figure is, but estimates are between 25 to 50 million people, right? Probably closer to 50. So even World War II, didn't wipe out as many people proportional to the population as the Roman Civil War wiped out 2,000 years ago. Think about that. By the way, during exactly the same period, the Romans were engaged in wars with the Jews of Judea in Israel, and um, they killed about 3 million Jews in addition. there which was a huge majority of almost all the, of all the Jews in the world, right? There were no Jews in, in, uh, in South America. There were no Jews in North America. The Jews of the world were in Judea, and three million of them were massacred by the Romans. Um, when the Christian armies of Spain and Portugal decided to reconquer the iberian peninsula from the Muslims. There was in the period from about 1200 to about 1500 um, seven million people died um, how about the mongols how many europeans did the mongols killed in their various invasions of uh, eastern europe so again round about the 14th century 30 million Europeans and we're talking about much smaller populations than today so in other words the likelihood of being untouched by violence and by horror and by tragedy was very very low everybody was think about uh, the hundred years war The Hundred Years' War was taking place around about the middle of the 15th century while Johann Gutenberg was inventing the printing press. The Hundred Years' War, three million Western Europeans died. Um, The Spanish conquests in South America, Colombia, Mexico, all, all, right? 16th century, 15 million people died. During the same time, there were Protestant and Catholic wars going on in Europe, and uh, that took the lives of three million Frenchmen. At exactly the same time, there were dynastic wars going on in China 20 million deaths. Um, the 30 years war going on with the austro-hungarian empire and the spanish and the germans same time was the 30 year war how many eight million deaths there think about these numbers to put them into perspective if if you wanted if you needed to bury 10 million people in a cemetery you know packing them in plots shall we say uh, you know eight feet by three feet how much land would be needed to bury 10 million people and i've been talking about you know, like tens of tens millions dying i mean you I actually i actually figured this out um saving you the arithmetic but uh, it wasn't hard to figure out if you want to bury 10 million dead people it would take about oh 20 square miles that's like bigger than any cemetery you can imagine 20 square miles that's area of five miles by four miles imagine a square five miles long and four miles wide that's huge and now just fill that with bodies and you've buried 10 million bodies I mean, these are big numbers, lots and lots and lots of people dying. So, um, so to live in a time like today, where many, many, many Americans and many people in Europe live out their lives without ever encountering life-changing violence. It's, it's a huge blessing but I think you'll agree that the numbers are diminishing. In other words, it's getting worse. More and more people are now witnessing or experiencing or seeing, and, and even witnessing, You, I mean, you know how upsetting it is for a civilized human being to witness brutal violence right in front of their eyes. It's life-changing. And more and more people in Western civilization are experiencing that because western civilization is sadly in decline and you'll remember that world war one was touted as the war to end all wars and after world war one we got the league of nations and no more wars are going to happen well it was barely 20 years before uh, we got to september the first 1939 and world war ii began so I don't think anybody today believes that mankind is moving towards a state of civilized tranquility. Uh, Francis Fukuyama was a historian sociologist who um, who wrote a book called The End of History. And there was, there was a period where this was a popular idea. Uh, that somehow we're moving towards the perfection of mankind and uh, we're we're coming to a time where fewer and fewer people are going to die at uh, the hands of brutality and violence anyway i don't think anybody believes that anymore Uh, people would like to and it's true that uh, when you are living in a relatively peaceful and prosperous western civilization country um, it's it's hard to realize that daily brutality and violence is is really more the rule than the exception. Um, I can't help thinking of October the seventh, twenty twenty-three. There in the south of Israel, peace-loving citizens, people who'd gone out of their way to welcome uh, Arabs from Gaza. To come and work and become part of their communities there were people some of the people who died used to drive Gazans to Israeli hospitals if they needed medical treatment I mean these people really believed they were bringing in a new era of peace and uh, they were hurled into the shocking realization that brutality and violence are normal they're not ideal they're not desirable but they are normal and all of this i'm trying to show you that for a woman to say she doesn't need a man is i mean it it, it's uh, incredibly short-sighted and uneducated and ignorant because um well let's just say the kibbutz members. And their wives and their children on October the 7th, they didn't even have time to understand that the only way they would survive that terrible day would be by killing every single one of the 3,000 invaders. But, you know, they didn't do it and they paid with their lives. But, gosh, how about um, some of the women who survived the uh, music festival? they were with guys who dragged them off and in some cases laid down on top and them, covered them with their bodies and the guys got killed and the bullets were, were prevented from killing the girls. Yeah, sorry ladies, but women do need men. And if in this brief shining moment of history, you can get away for a period of thinking that between your job and the um, security firm patrolling your neighborhood, you actually don't need men. Lots of luck with that. It's It's a temporary idea, it's a temporary dream, and simply not part of reality. Yes, a woman does need a man, and a man does need a woman. And the partnership they form that we think of as a family is by far and away the best arrangement for a child to grow up in. So much so that there has been talk of labeling the family as a unearned privilege. I have actually seen apologies on the part of people saying, well, Uh, You know, I have to apologize for my privilege. Excuse me? What privilege? Well, you know, I grew up in an intact, loving family with a mother and a father who cared for me and helped put me on the road. Yes, that's normal. That's not a privilege. Well, I suppose it is certainly a blessing, but uh, it's, it's, it's something that makes a huge difference in somebody's life. As I said, neither girls nor boys do well growing up with a single mom it just doesn't happen that way girls and boys need a father and a mother and mothers need a husband and fathers need a wife this is so basic and so real but you see that does conflict with other ideas such as sexism We must fight sexism. We must fight the patriarchy. Excuse me? Again, I'm not even going to begin to puzzle of what the patriarchy could possibly mean. I mean, incredible. What what does it mean? But assuming that uh, there are various uh, interpretations that can be placed upon it, it hatred of the patriarchy for many people would disqualify a normal family because the truth is as I said earlier both women and men would rather the man be the dominant partner in the marriage again I feel the necessity to issue the caveat that this is provided the man is a real man he's a nobleman he's not a scoundrel he's a knight not a knave he is a gentleman um if he's not all bets are off obviously everything changes and um yeah i mean uh, obviously um, no wise woman will willingly and knowingly marry a scoundrel a cad and a knave but in a, a situation of good men and good women yeah absolutely they would both they both do better when the dominant partner is the man and um, if you want a proof of that well one of the proofs is something that i describe in uh, our book the holistic you which is that it is true that on average men are taller than women it is true that the mean height for men is about 5'9". In the United States of America, for women, it's about 5'4", about a five-inch difference. But everybody knows that there are six-foot-tall women, and everybody knows that they're five-foot-four short guys. They are. But... If we were to take all the stats, and and you know that we know a great deal about height because every single time you go to the doctor, you get your height measured and gets recorded. And so for uh, people wanting to do statistical research, it's very easy to find out how tall people are in America. So if we took 300 million Americans and uh, matched them up into 150 million couples, just using complete randomness, because women on average are shorter than men, what percentage of couples would have the man taller than the woman? You'd think a majority, and you'd be right. About 67%. About 67% of random formed couples would have the man taller than the woman. However, using your eyes as you move around society— and you look at people, what do you think is the real number? What is the real number? In other words, what do you think the real proportion is of couples in which the man is taller than the woman? And the answer is just about 90%. So therefore, since randomness would produce less than 70%, but reality is about 90%, there are only three possibilities. And that is women prefer taller men men prefer shorter women or both. Those are the only possibilities. There is nothing else to say about it. Yes, both men and women prefer the man to be taller than the woman than the woman. That says something. Remember I've spoken in the past at previous shows about how uh, spiritual realities are revealed by physical realities that uh, the good lord created us in accordance with a spiritual format and so our physical reality matches our spiritual reality there it is i've just said it women prefer to be with a man that they can look up to now i will tell you that uh, i know plenty couples where the woman is either the same height as the man or slightly taller but in every case I know, every case I can think of, the man is dominant by f- personality, by attribute, by courage, by strength, by determination, by f- financial wealth. Yeah, that's fine. It doesn't have to be looked up to physically. That's one thing. But it's also looking up spiritually. Right. And that is, I mean, it's it's, it's a reality in in the most conventional and ordinary form of physical intimacy, the woman looks up at the man. Again, that's just a reality of how the world really works. So, back to the idea that any doctrine that conflicts with reality is um, false. It doesn't. It doesn't work. It's wrong. Simply. And so we've got to be careful not to buy into these ideas. Well, these days, this or that, or we're living in modern times, and they will this or that. No, There's certain things that are built in to human beings, right? They're not going to change. Now, you can distort yourself. You can. You can harm yourself physically. You can harm yourself spiritually. There's no question about it but uh, you do not end up living successfully when that happens. There was a child raising doctrine a few years ago, and I still run into people today who believe in it, uh, which is that it's not good to say no to children. For, you know, they came up with various explanations and logical trains that explain. It's not good to say no to a child. A child shouldn't be suppressed or repressed, you should always try and let a child do whatever the child wants to do. Okay, well, what happens then is that you raise a child with no self-discipline and no impulse control. One of the great gifts that parents give their children very early on is the power of self-control, impulse control. Well, if, if there's one thing that can be identified as perhaps the most, one of the most important attributes in terms of success in life, it's impulse control, meaning you don't act on your impulse, the first thing you feel like doing. Um, impulse control means you don't punch somebody or slap somebody or hit somebody if they irritate you. That takes impulse control. Not everybody has it. If you were raised by loving parents who really cared about you, They said no to you enough times so as you were able to develop the internal system of self-regulation and impulse control. But the doctrine of choosing to raise children, according to this doctrine of never say no to a child, it's a false doctrine because it conflicts with reality. It doesn't conform with reality. And so reality remains a, a wonderful bedrock barometer of truth because, well, reality just doesn't really lie. And that's why I always like reminding you that my job is revealing how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that what you need in your life I don't care whatever the circumstances and it may be it may be hard given your circumstances to actually have this but you still should know that what you need are your five f's you need not only to have your five f's you need to feel growth and progress in your five f's you need to know that you are improving in your family life You're improving in your financial life. You're improving in your social life with your friendships. You're improving physically. You're taking better care of yourself. And you are also improving in your faith and spiritual life. So until next week, my dear happy warriors, thinking of you always and looking forward to getting to know more and more of you As you go to rabbidaniellappin.com and you become a happy warrior. Until next week, I am your rabbi. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.